Would you begin today by praying with me? Our great Lord, we come to you today with the confidence of being your child. Yet, we approach you with great reverence and humble confidence. We know that there is no other God and that you alone are the sustainer of all things. And we recognize that you provide care to the small birds of the air and that you love and your concern is far greater for us. Therefore, we are happy in you, Lord. We thank you for the peace that you give us even when we live in a turbulent world. We thank you for the spiritual rest that you give us even as we live in an anxious society. We come to you today to find that peace and rest. Give us clarity now as we concentrate on you and your word alone. Give us freedom from the cares of this world so that you have our soul devotion. We praise you, Christ, for your boundless compassion to us. We praise you, Christ, for the new life that you give to us. We praise you, Christ, that you are our help, that you are our shield, and that you are our fortress. And so we thank you, Lord, and we put our confidence in you. May you be praised by the calm of our minds and the devotion of our hearts right now. And it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. First Thessalonians 4 is where we'll start. Every day we experience pain, trouble, consequence, misfortunes. Every day you and I, we encounter people who are hurting, who are hopeless, who are despondent, depressed, and beaten down. And all of that is the result of sin. We, we live in a world that is dominated by sin and pain and death. And yet we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 37, that we are more than conquerors through Him, through Christ. In fact, the word is over-conquerors. And so what does that look like to be an over-conqueror as we live in a world that's dominated by pain, that's full of pain? One thing as a believer is we don't get to avoid pain. But embrace it. And embrace it with the truth. And today we'll discuss what it means to experience hurt with other people. If we are going to live like Christ, I'm not sure there's a characteristic that is more easily seen or that love is more easily seen than when we show compassion the way that Christ showed compassion. So we're going to talk about what that means to give comfort or compassion to other people, how we experience pain with them or hurt with them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18 uh, we're, we're going to read just the verse, but I'll go back to give you some of the context. It's, a, it's a, maybe an unusual passage, but probably familiar to us. So verse 18 simply reads, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And if you're familiar with the passage, you, you understand the context. Uh, 
This is a, a new church in Thessalonica. They don't, they're not rich in doctrine. They don't have a rich doctrinal heritage or history. They're not well acquainted with the Scriptures. They've been told and preached to, and they've believed in childlike faith. They've put their trust in Christ. And yet, some of the things that they were expecting to happen have not happened the way they thought they would. Mainly, they thought Christ would come back. They were expecting Christ to return. After all, the apostles preached that Christ would come back. And so they're in a dilemma here, years later, as members of the church are dying off. And Christ hasn't come back yet. And they thought that, that Christ would come before any of them died. And yet people are experiencing death which we know is the result of sin. We all die. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Why judgment? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is wicked. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so they're experiencing death as a result of their own sin. The pain that they've brought to God, the separation that they've caused. And they don't understand the Scriptures. And they're beginning to worry and wonder that they understood something incorrectly. And so Paul writes this letter to them. And it's a letter of encouragement. And that's really what comfort is. It's to bring encouragement. In fact, the word here, therefore comfort one another, is to call near to provide comfort. So he's, he's saying he's going to call them to himself Actually, what he's going to call them to is Scripture for them to find comfort. And so we have here Paul giving the theology of God, starting in verse 13. We've got this great context. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep. And he says, I don't want you to, to, to sorrow without hope. We should have hope. And the reason we have hope is because Christ is not dead. He rose from the dead. The same truth that they were holding to this whole time, that Christ alone provides redemption, is still the truth. Death cannot undo what Christ did. And if there's one theme through this sermon, that's going to be it. Christ is the champion over death. And so Paul says, I'm going to call you near to me, and I'm going to encourage you or challenge you to call other people near to you and encourage them, comfort them, and comfort them with what? Notice the Scriptures, therefore comfort one another with these words. And so what does it mean to comfort other people? Well, here he's writing to Christians, and there's this recognition of a need for care. People are struggling, right? In the church, people are struggling to comprehend what is God doing? Is God coming back? Is He not coming back? Is what Paul said true? Is, is what he said not true? Did he get something wrong? Did I misinterpret something? And there are all these questions floating around the church. And Paul says, listen, call those who are hurting. Call those who are wondering near and remind them of these words. Remind them of Scripture. That's the context here. This church is filled with people who are concerned and doubting even their faith. And it's because they don't have a lot of faith. 
They, they, they're not well-grounded in Scripture, and so they're unsure of what's going on. And so the command to give comfort is issued to call people near so that they can find encouragement. By the way, this in, implies then that we are inviting people to come near to us. People aren't going to want to come near to us if we're uninviting. And so it's to live in such a manner that people are, are welcomed by you. They know that they're welcome. They know they can come to you. They know they can ask a question even if it seems like a silly question. By the way, th these Thessalonians, they probably had what we would consider silly questions. Like, wait a second, Jesus died and rose from the dead, but now people are dying. Does that mean his, that his sacrifice on the cross was not enough? I would say that sounds to me, and to you that might sound silly, like a very juvenile, basic question. And yet here, these people have these basic questions, and they're willing, to, the Thessalonians and Paul is willing to draw them near to answer these very basic questions for them. That means they had to be approachable. Gentle in their reception. Inviting in the way that they deliver the truth. And notice what do they say? With these words. Remind them about what the Scripture says. And of course, this is done after they're invited into their lives. After uh, Paul understands the believers and understands the spiritual needs of the believers and the questions that they have, he invites them to come find the answers with him from Scripture. And so we must carefully use Scripture to build others up. Let me ask you, how often do we truly draw near to someone who is hurting with the goal of bringing them comfort from God's Word? How often do we live in such a way that we are inviting others to come search the Scriptures with us, hear what God's Word says, and find help in time of need? And really, probably the next question would be, do you know the Scriptures well enough to point to the answers that God gives us? I realize as, as a pastor that I've studied Scripture for decades and everyone assumes that I know the answer for every question that you could possibly give. I don't. Some of you try to stump me sometimes. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I'm not the only one who should be a good, an excellent student of God's Word. We're all called to do that. And so you must know the Scriptures well. The second word that is used in developing this idea of experiencing hurt or drawing others near with comfort is found in Galatians. We've studied this one already. If you turn to Galatians, we've studied this passage actually several weeks ago, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 is what we studied. I've been holding off on verse 2 for this week. They go hand in hand. I, I hope you understand this. As I'm preparing one sermon from week to week, as we go through this series of one anothering together, it's amazing to me how easily they transition from one to the other. No pun intended. They flow together so well, this idea, this concept of how we're to relate to each other. And so Galatians chapter 6, let's just read verse 1. It'll be familiar, it's from three weeks ago, I believe. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, 
you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then verse 2, our text here, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens means to lift and sustain. It goes goes hand in hand with my favorite word that I've mentioned every week for five weeks now, parakaleo, to come alongside, to put your arm around someone, to lift them up and bear them along. They go hand in hand. Here, bear one another. Literally lift them and continue to sustain them. It's actually a very precise word. It signifies that we're looking for believers who are struggling or stumbling or have fallen, and we are going to run to their aid in order to lift them up and bear them along. And so, uh, verse 1, we studied this. The one who is overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. So this is a person who's, and this is the, the illustration I use, this is what the word means, someone who's been overtaken in a fault is they're running, they're fleeing, and sin has caught them and tackled them, overtaken them, beat them down, and they're on the ground, and they can't get up, and they're, they're powerless to, to move forward, and they need someone who's going to parakaleo, come down, reach down, and pull them up. That's who you and I are to be when we encounter someone who's spiritually overrun. In fact, Jesus uses this word to describe the laws of the Pharisees. That the laws of the Pharisees have beaten down the Jewish people to the point where they're overburdened. They're overcome with spiritual laws and practices that never reach the heart. And it's the job of a believer to come up to them and to pick them up, lift them up. Literally, the command here is lift them up, sustain them. In fact, the word has the same root word of removing. In other words, removing them from the danger. You are to help remove others, your fellow believers, from the dangers of sin. It's a present active imperative, meaning you start it and you keep on doing and, and don't stop. And so, I'll use the similar illustration to parakoleo. I described it when I preached on it. It's like a, a soldier reaching down from a high place to pull his fellow soldier up to safety. That's the idea. Well, the word here of bearing each other up, lifting each other up, is like dragging them all the way to safety. Not just lifting them up, but, but dragging them to a place of safety. It's actually the same word that is used of Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 17, when Jesus is bearing the cross. Yes, it's speaking of a physical cross, but it's really talking about the spiritual cross that he's bearing. He keeps on bearing it and never stops. We are to lift or help lift the burdens that other people encounter. And notice what's the result. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The, to fulfill means to make full. Make full in that person's life 
the law of Christ, the law of love, right? He comes to give us a new commandment. What's the new commandment? That you love one another with a pure heart fervently, that you love your neighbor as yourself. It's not brand new. It's new in that this is what should be emphasized. Not the Old Testament mosaic laws. The law that's been written on the heart of man since the creation of man that God deserves our utmost love. That we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. And then the second part is that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so that's the commandment that's given to us. That's how we make full God's law in the lives of other people. We lift them up. Interesting. It's even connected in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 to Christian liberty. The freedom that you have in Christ. And I've emphasized, and we've emphasized this a lot lately. Your freedom, your liberty, does not mean you get to do whatever you want. It doesn't mean that there's never any consequence for sin. It means you can do anything you want for the cause of Christ in advancing His gospel in someone's life. By the way, that's why Christ could sit down with wine-bibbers, publicans, and, and, and harlots and minister the gospel to them. He had freedom from the law. The Old Testament mosaic, not even the mosaic law because he fulfilled that, but the pharisaical law. He had freedom from all of that in order to minister grace. And that's what you have. And that's what I have. I have liberty in Christ, but my liberty is not about me it's about how I can love for Christ. And so he says in Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in, this, in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as, you, as yourself. And so... When's the last time you've seen a brother or a sister in Christ being unexpectedly weighed down and you helped pick up their burden and carry it for them? Now, obviously, that can be hard to do. It necessitates relationship. If I don't know you well and I walk up to you and say, tell me all of your woes, let me help you carry them, you're probably going to be like, that pastor's weird. But if we have relationship, and I come to you and I say, I've seen that you're hurting. It doesn't look like you're telling anyone what's going on. Let me pray with you. Let me help you. Let me plead with Christ on your behalf. Things are very different then. And so when's the last time you experienced this kind of hurt with someone? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. This will be our third and last text that we look at concerning this idea of experiencing hurt with others. I hope you see that they're very, they overlap in many ways. This is two ideas of calling people near for encouragement or moving to them in order to lift them up. Well, here in 1 Peter 3, verse 8 and verse 9, the Bible says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. 
not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And so just as we talked about last week, we talked about love. We see it even here now, this command to love as brothers. The chief tool is love on display. And so Peter's writing this, as we, t- we studied uh, this book last week, Peter is writing this to a church that's persecuted. They're going through difficulty. They're, they're being ostracized. They're being pushed away by their own people. They're being uh, pressured by society around them. And they're feeling this be- simply because they've, they've aligned themselves with Christ. And so Peter is encouraging them to continue on, to be faithful. Do not continue in struggle, but find help. And you can find help in Christ. And so it's written to believers. I think it's also written to unbelievers because unbelievers are watching. They're watching and evaluating you. How will you respond in trouble? How will you respond in moments of weakness? How will you respond when things in your life are not going well? Circumstantially, it's not good. And Peter is challenging the believers to stand firm and to be sympathetic and compassionate to one another during those times. And in doing that, love will shine. Notice God's desire is to be united, to be of one mind. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Right? He's, he's, he's making this closing argument to his statements on love and his statements on holiness. And he says, finally, be of one mind. And what's that one mind look like? Having compassion to each other. Unity in mind will result in unity in action and it will glorify God. And so he's asking them to be united in their compassion to one another. Or we would say their sympathy. To feel sympathy with others. In fact, there's several words that he uses here. This sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings and the misfortunes of others. And by the way, I think that means believers and that means unbelievers. Just people around us who are in plight. They're having trouble. They're going through difficulty. Show them sympathy. And in showing them sympathy and in compassion, you show them the love of Christ. In fact, he uses multiple words to describe it. This display of, of compassion, which I might add... That's love on display. Compassion is love on display. And if there's one characteristic that so closely resembles Jesus Christ, it is compassion. And so here he says, be pitiful or tender-hearted. Now listen, if your child is behaving pitiful, Right? Let's say you got, let's, let's make them really innocent. Right? You got a little one year old and their little lower lip is quivering. Right? You say, oh, it's so pitiful. Right? It is. It's very unbecoming of adults. But on little babies, it's cute. He's commanding us here not to be pitiful, not to have quivering lips, but to be full of pity towards other people. To be overflowing with tender-hearted compassion. 
And so he tells us to be courteous. That's to be, to be friendly or looking for opportunity to show sympathy. In fact, he even gives us the opposing things, not rendering evil for evil, but instead returning blessing for evil, showing compassion. In other words, when it's not deserved, absolutely has not been earned, those are the moments when compassion shines brightest. Can you show sympathy to people who have treated you poorly? you want to really evaluate your life and your character, your conduct as a Christian, answer that question. Can you show compassion to someone who has treated you poorly? Because as we study the life of Christ, and we're about to look at the example of Christ, he did it over and over and over again. You look for opportunities to be tender-hearted and compassionate to those around you? All right. I'm not going to spend as much time on these next two, probably. But I want to look at the example of Christ. And I want to go to what we might automatically think is one of the best places to go, in which I think we'll find a bit of a surprise. First, the easy spot is the Beatitudes. Christ commands us in the Beatitudes. In this great Sermon on the Mount, he gives the Beatitudes, and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn here is the idea of you and I mourning over sin. We mourn over the sin of other people. Has there ever ever been somebody you've interacted with who's been living in sin, and you've wanted their, their repentance more than they wanted their repentance? Right? If you have children, you probably felt it there. If you have close friends where you've desired that they, they behave righteously more than they desire to behave righteously, it's very difficult. And in those moments, God says He blesses those who mourn over their own sin, but also over the sins of other people. And so we're commanded to show comfort to people who are in sin. And one way we do that is we mourn over their sin. Listen, sin angers God. He hates sin. He must be separate from sin. This is why, this is why people are, are uh, de- determined to go to hell. This is why God, Christ cannot forgive someone who refuses to repent. He must separate the sin that he sees before him. And if somebody has not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then when God looks at them, he sees their sin and he must eradicate them. He must send them to hell. And yet, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ hates sin. That's why He went to the cross to destroy it. And Christ is glorified when people mourn over their sin, when they agree with Him about their sin. By the way, Paul says this very thing, that sin must be put to death, destroyed. We too often dabble with sin, right? We, 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 we try to clean up our lives from sin, but often we take a little bit and we just kind of tuck it away for later. 
And Christ wants us to completely cut it out and destroy it. And so he tells us that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, if, you, if I could pick one passage, or I could ask you, where one passage where Jesus Christ absolutely mourns, we would probably say, ah, oh, it's the passage in John 11 where Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. Ah, Jesus, oh, he was just so full of co- comfort and compassion that he wept when he saw Mary and Martha, and he saw them struggling over the life of Lazarus. I don't think that's what's going on. But would you turn with me to John chapter 11? I want you to see how it is that we should properly mourn over sin. John chapter 11, the famous verse, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. In fact, he already knows he's going to do it. In the very beginning of, uh, of John 11, Jesus gets news that, that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus does nothing. Right? This master healer waits and does nothing. This is an interesting passage. There's so much going on here. Let me just highlight a few things. Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die. He knew it. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so, Jesus hears the news that he's sick unto death, and Jesus says, don't worry, he's not going to die. But you know the story, he dies. Was Jesus wrong? Did he, get, did he make a mistake here? Well, he waits to go in verse 6. It says, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then he said, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he waits. He, he waits on purpose. Then verse 11, Jesus intends to raise him from the dead. Now notice, Jesus is not there yet. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps but I go that I may wake him up. And then verse 14, Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Right? They don't get it. If he sleeps, that's good. He should sleep off the fever. My mom said that when you're asleep, when you're, you know, they kind of go into that. Maybe he should put like some kind of some salt under his arm, say, eat some chicken noodle soup. Sleep's good for him. And Jesus is like, oh, guys, he's dead. He's dead, Okay. Now they're really perplexed, and they come and they arrive, and Jesus raises him from the dead. In fact, Jesus weeps. And let's look at why Jesus weeps here. In verse 19, there are comforters here. And this is why we're looking at this passage. There's comforting that's going on. Verse 19 And many of the Jews, let's just go to verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary, or Martha and Mary, to comfort them concerning their brother. 
And so they come to comfort. Now this is a common practice in Judaism that you would pay people to mourn. They were public mourners. People, you would literally pay them. They were so good at crying that they could be paid to show up to a funeral <laughs> you know, and, and just wail and mourn and, and, and wow. And everyone would say, wow, oh look how much they were loved. There's hundreds of people here crying. They were such a good person. That's why people paid mourners. In fact, I think that's what's going on here. Verse 31. It's common practice. Paid mourners. Verse 31. Notice what happens. Everyone's watching. And then the Jews who are with her, that's Martha, in the house, and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. In other words, if we want to get paid, we better stick with her. We got, we got to go mourn. We got to go mourn at the tomb now. And so these people follow, and they go to the tomb. Now listen, God has everything under control. Lazarus is not one who is bound by death. The reason is because spiritually he's been made alive in Christ. There's two people in Scripture that say we're closest to Jesus. John the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' breast, and Lazarus. The two closest people to Jesus. He knew who Christ was. So he's not dead spiritually. He's alive. And Christ is now going to demonstrate it. And so Jesus comes to the tomb and he sees everyone mourning this hopeless, empty mourning that's going on and he is overcome. And I'll tell you what I think Jesus is overcome with. I think he's overcome with anger, rage, Notice what happened. He's angry because people think that death has won. Lazarus is in the tomb. And Mary and Martha have very little faith in this moment to the point where they said, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. It's almost it's an accusation even. And notice what happens. In verse, uh, verse 31, we read that she, uh, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32, then came Mary... Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The word groaned means to be full of indignation. You ever groan? I groan sometimes. It's more like a growl, right? Dissatisfied with something, frustrated, ready to blow my top. That's what Jesus is here. He has indignation and he is looking for a, for a place to place blame. That's what the word literally means. He's looking to punish something. And he is troubled. Troubled means agitated or literally angry. And so he asks in verse 34, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Listen, that, this has puzzled me for years. I thought, oh, oh right? Even just like the, the people, Right? Jesus wept. And what's the next verse? Then the Jews said, oh, how he loved him. 
right? He's sad too. Jesus was not sad. He was angry. And he was angry over sin. And he was angry over the consequence of sin, which is death. And he's angry that the people have such little faith, including Martha and Mary, that they're sitting now with tears running down their face, upset and, and concerned and hopeless, and it appears that death has won. Death is a tyrant, and sin is egregious. And I, am, I, I believe Jesus weeps here, not because of the pain of losing Lazarus, but because of the pain of sin. He knows what he's about to do. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. It, what troubles him is the people and their hopelessness and the sin that has just permeated their life. He is sick over their sin. And so he, as Jesus always is, is full of compassion and he must do something. He is the champion over sin and death. And so he proves it. And he calls Lazarus forth. I think Jesus is troubled because sin seems to be triumphing, uh, triumphing in the world. And his soul is filled with rage as he approaches the tomb. He's not surprised. He's not overcome because of death. He's in complete control. And yet it's in his very nature to hate sin. And whenever Jesus encounters people who, who are experiencing the painful results of sin, His chief action is to show love, to show compassion, because He so hates sin. Can I ask you, do you even with a, the sliver like Christ hate sin the way that Jesus Christ hates sin? If we hated it, the way that Jesus hates it, we would show compassion the way Jesus shows compassion. And if there's one thing you read through the life and the ministry of Christ, it's that He was continually filled with compassion. He was always ready to, to show love in action or compassion, to show pity. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 34, He encounters two blind men, and the Bible says Jesus had compassion. Mark 1 verse 41, the lepers come to him, they're in need of cleansing, and the Bible says Jesus is moved with compassion. His heart cannot stop itself from showing them pity and love and concern. Luke 7 4, uh, 13, he encounters a woman. In fact, rather, his entourage runs into a funeral procession at the gate, and they're both trying to get through at the same time, and the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on this widow whom he had never even spoken to. Mark 6.34, a whole crowd gathers on a hillside. And Jesus is moved with compassion. He could not help but render aid and show care. In fact, Matthew, the same account in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Weary means to be under distress spiritually, worn out, scattered like a bunch of sheep who had no one to lead them. By the way, that's in the context of the religious leaders' instruction. The religion had failed the people. And Jesus Christ would not. Nothing was more motivating to Jesus 
than the distress of other people. His very nature would not allow him to ignore or become too busy for the needs of those around him. Think about how many times Jesus was on his way to go perform a miracle even, and he stops because there's someone in front of him with great need, and he's moved with compassion. Think about how Jesus for two straight days ministers to people and he's in the back of a ship in the middle of a storm and he's asleep because he's exhausted and the disciples come and say, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? And he rises and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He exhausted himself in in showing compassion to other people. And yet we are not Christ. How often... We do not even want to overextend ourselves, inconvenience ourselves to show compassion. Listen, how are you developing this level of love, this level of compassion in your life? Maybe you need to ask yourself, what's hindering you from showing this level of care? I want to close quickly with where comfort comes from. We kind of hit it at the beginning of the sermon. I want to make explicitly clear where our help comes from. How is it that you and I can show this level of comfort? Well, obviously, we must spend time with Jesus. Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2 says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so help comes from Christ. It comes from the hope that we have in who Christ is. Confidence in the promises of God. Confident expectation in who God is. His very character. Of course, we therefore must know Him. And that's where comfort comes from, the Lord. But it also comes from Scripture. This is how we can know the Lord. We can have comfort in the promise of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 We can have comfort in the promises of who God is. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I'm reminded of Colossians 128. I think it's wrong in the bulletin. I, put, I wrote it down wrong. Colossians 128. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Romans 15.4 For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Psalm 119, verse 49, Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. And Psalm 19, 7, 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Listen, how well do you encourage other people through the use of Scripture? Encourage them to draw near to God because He will draw near to them. Would you pray with me right now as I ask God to help us? We need to develop this kind of compassion. We need the love of Christ to be vibrant and alive in us. Let's pray. Our compassionate Savior, we are in terrible need right now. We need your compassion because we've become overcome with selfishness, overtaken by sinful desires. We too have become beaten down with bad choices. We've failed to show your love and your pity to others. For this, Lord, we repent. We plead for your compassion. We also thank you for your mercy that is new every morning. Lord, I ask you with grave seriousness that you enliven us with your tenderness. Fill us with your love in a way that overflows into the lives of those around us. Help us to have an excess of joy and confidence in your goodness so that we flood the lives of those around us with your love. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is alive and making us alive. Help us to hide your word in our hearts so that in moments of crisis or need, our natural reaction will be to comfort others with your word. Lord, help us to be moved with compassion like you. I'm going to ask the piano to play here for a stanza or two and just give us a time to respond. I encourage you in this moment to just pause and talk to the Lord. Be honest with yourself. How well are you displaying the compassion of Christ to those around you? Sometimes it's easiest with strangers to evaluate your life, those close to you, or those who should be close to you. How are you showing the compassion of Christ?